Synonymous? Um, I'm an alcoholic that doesn't drink. You know, that's an odd thing for any one of us to say because if we understand our situation, everything in our experience tells us we'll drink again. Yet we meet people on these uh, channels and in these rooms that are self-professed alcoholics who don't drink. Um, I don't like Mississippi. I, I think I do well in Mississippi. I, I'm really into copperheads and water moccasins and rattlesnakes. You get all those really cool vipers down there. Plus, I like I look generally I like that kind of Midwest experience. Anyhow, one of these days I hope to be down in Mississippi. So, you know, no matter where I go in the world, speaking in AA and, and other 12-step fellowships that I've spoken in, you know, it's really amazing that we can go anywhere in the world and plug into a pretty amazing uh fellowship of like-minded people, people like yourselves, anywhere in the world. And um, you know, when I'm in the rooms whether on Zoom or in person, I'm always asking the question, are you working a program? And I, and I, you know, through the share, I hope to outline the program of action and dispel some of the misconceptions that have come into our rooms over the years. Um, that really isn't part of what we do. You know, the, so when I ask people that question, you know, are you working your program? The most common response I get is, oh, yeah, I work a program. I go to meetings every day, sometimes three meetings a day. Meeting makers make it 90 and 90. And I go, no, that's 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 not what I'm speaking about. Are you, are you working with someone? They go, yeah, I got a sponsor. I call my sponsor every day. I don't miss a day that I don't talk to my sponsor. My sponsor manages all my decisions. They tell me who I can sleep with. They tell me, you know, how to manage my money. I don't make a decision till I talk to my sponsor. And sponsors, I've heard some crazy stuff out of sponsors. I went to one meeting here in Toronto, Ontario. It was a big AA meeting uh, pre-COVID. It was they get about 300, 350 people at this meeting. And this woman is there in her pajamas. I said, what are you doing? She goes, my sponsor told me that if uh, I had to demonstrate my willingness by showing up at this meeting in my pajamas. And again, who comes up with these kinds of suggestions? You know, I, I met, I worked with another woman who was so angry at her sponsor. I said, well, what's going on? She goes, well, my sponsor told me in order to recover, I had to clean his house twice a week. And I ain't getting any better. And I think, you know, well, Dr. Bob did say clean house, but I don't think he meant it quite so literally. Um, I was talking to one fellow a few months back and he's building a deck out in his backyard and he's at the hardware store and we're talking. He says, Cameron, I got to go. I, I'm just about to buy some screws and I got to call my sponsor to let him know what screws I'm buying. And I'm thinking, somebody's got a screw loose here. Like, where, where do people come up with this stuff? And one of the things I see in the fellowship and not just AA, but I see it in other fellowships too are very codependent relationships with their sponsors where they 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 these sponsors want to micromanage the program of the prospect and and there's a caveat to that i get it i get why some of them might try and do that i think some sponsors get off on the power they have managing people's lives and look how many people call me every day for advice and you know, that sort of thing. But there's a line in the working with others that when we put our service on on that plane, the, the prospect ceases to rely on a higher power and come to rely upon us instead. 
And that's dangerous because human power has always, always failed me. And, you know, I go, well, that's not really what I'm talking about. Are you working with newcomers? And they look at me like I got three heads on. They go, newcomers. I'm still a newcomer. I've only been in the program two years. This is a selfish program. I got to work on me first. And I never see them again. Now, the untreated alcoholic. I love untreated alcoholics. They're so crazy. They dig holes. They love to dig. <laughs> and, and they dig these very deep holes. And being the nature of the untreated alcoholic, they fall into their hole and they get stuck. And they cry out for help. And some of the people that come along to try to help the alcoholic down in the hole are the families and the friends and the employers. And they offer those frothy emotional appeals and they bail them out of trouble. And they're forever extending that proverbial ladder down in the hole and saying, please, please climb out and be with us. We love you. But what does the untreated alcoholic do? Trades the ladder in for a bottle, goes out on another bender, and digs the hole a little deeper and cries out for help. And then the next group of people that come along and try to help the alcoholic down in the hole are the religious communities. And they go, here, let us read this scripture together. Let me kneel and pray with you for a while. But because it's a program of faith without works, it avails the alcoholic very little power and they remain stuck and they cry out for help. Then the medical community comes along. Now, the medical community is very motivated to find solutions for us alcoholics. And they come up with all sorts of wild concoctions like anti-abuse and suboxone and methadone and clorazepam, diazepam, prazepam. I remember my doctor saying to me, he says, Cameron, you're depressed. I said, Jeff, think I've my life to the ground. Nobody wants to be a part of my life. It's in complete shambles. I'm on death's door. Yeah, I'm depressed, but I'm trying to get off pills. I don't need more pills. And the trouble with the pharmaceutical intervention is the pills, eventually the prescription expires, then the pills run out, and then the awful pain of being an untreated alcoholic comes to bear down on me. And I realize I'm still in the hole. And then lastly, the treatment center comes along, the multi-billion dollar treatment center industry with their two-year college-educated addiction counselor. And they go, here, we have a solution for you untreated alcoholics living in the hole. It's called group. You ever been to group? You ever been to treatment where they give group and you sit in a circle? Unfortunately, well, at least in the treatment center, they've got some semi-trained people, but they bring that stuff into our rooms. I call them open disgusting meetings where I walk into a room is like a semicircle of despondent looking people who don't want to be there. There's no solution, no experience, no strength, no hope. It's just problem, 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 like an Oprah wine fest, group therapy without a therapist. You ever been to one of those types of meetings? And by the end of the meeting, I'm a psychological casualty. I'm ready to put a bullet in my head or worse yet, a bullet in someone else's head. And, and now I need a meeting to fix the meeting I was supposed to get the experience, strength, and hope at. You ever been to one of those types of meetings? They're awful. And of course, and of course you know, the counselors, they always love to ask that question, how do you feel? You probably hear it in the rooms. How are you feeling? How do you feel? And today, in this today's world, everyone uses feelings like cognitive tools. And I go, how do I feel? I got two feelings as an untreated alcoholic. I feel like drinking and I feel like murdering you. Those are the only two feelings I've got as an untreated alcoholic. 
Of course, after an hour of sharing in group, the counselor goes, well, you're all beautiful people, but I practice a professional class of therapy and I got to go pick up my paycheck, but I'll see you next week. And the alcoholic realizes, hey, I'm still in the hole. Now, I got good news and bad news. The good news is there is a way out of the hole. The bad news is that if you be an alcoholic of the seemingly hopeless variety, chances are you're too dishonest, too selfish, too self-seeking, and too frightened to do the work, and you're going to die. And it's going to be an awful death. I've been working with others for uh, 20 years. I, I drank, used morning, noon, and night from the age of 20 to the age of 46. And uh, in those years, I've carried the message. Some of you know I do a workshop, 12 steps, four hours. I actually posted, we got a workshop coming up on Sunday. We just passed 10,000 participants in that workshop where we outlined the program of action in four hours since uh, May of 2007. I personally worked one-on-one -on -one taking them through the instructions of the 12 steps, about 430 people. Out of all those people, 44 are dead. I have 26 overdoses, nine suicides, and two murders. Now, that's the MO of the untreated alcoholic. Four, four outcomes, jail, death, overdose, or, you know, alcohol death, um, murder, and suicide. And, there, and I'm going to come back to the suicide issue in a minute. So our story is supposed to disclose in a general way what we're like, what happened, and what we're like today. Often I hear often from some speakers as what it was like. And you, you've probably heard the belabored war story. By the way, is there anyone here that's still a novice when it when it comes to drinking? Is there anyone that needs, you know, more experience or new ways to drink, right? I, I, I hear these war stories where they talk about all the different ways they drank and their their craziness. And I already know how to drink expert at drinking what i what i don't have is a solution so i'm not i'm not going to belabor the war story i always i love it when i hear a war story the 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 speaker will go i remember my first drink i was in my mother's third trimester and i realized i didn't drink like other fetuses and i think oh my god here we go and they spend the next 40 minutes talking about all this drinking but i'm not going to do that i'm going to try and focus more on the solution and what we can do about this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body so what am i like as an untreated alcoholic well i like drinking I like drinking more than anything else. I drink bourbon. Bourbon is what brought me to my knees. I don't know what it is about bourbon and whiskey, but it brings out my inner asshole. Like that stuff is awful. And I like drinking more than every job I've been fired from. I like drinking more than my children because my children would beg and plead. And, you know, and, and I was angry. I was always angry as an alcoholic. And my wife would offer those frothy emotional appeals and, threaten me with divorce, but I like drinking more than my wife, my kids, my work. I like drinking so much that I'm willing to risk my life. That amazing experience I get when I drink. I remember in 2000, my doctor diagnoses me. He says, Cameron, your, your blood work came back. Your liver is distended. Your enzymes are through the roof. You've got liver disease. And unless you stop drinking, you're going to die. And the first thought that hit my brain was, damn, I need a drink right now. That's awful news. 
and drank for three more years on that news. Now, that makes no sense to the non-alcoholic. I never liked that non-alcoholic or normies or earth people. I call them muggles. That's a Harry Potter term for non-wizard. My wife's a muggle. My wife, you know, my wife is what I call a JDD girl. Just don't drink. And you know what? That's the solution. Just don't drink. But somehow, some way, I keep figuring out a reason why I should pick up a drink and I succumb to the desire. Yeah. In AA, you know, AA is a very formal fellowship. You know, you don't cuss, you suit up, you know, it's a very, it's formal. And uh, there's things you should say and shouldn't say within a room because, you know, uh, one of the things I don't do is cuss when I'm speaking in AA because most members will tune out. So I started thinking, what kind of an analogy can I use that I can get away with in the rooms of AA? So I came up with, and it's from the Book of Solomon, of all places. As an untreated alcoholic, I'm like a dog that returns to its own vomit. You ever seen a dog eat something that makes it foully sick? What does it do? It throws it up. And then it eats the vomit only to throw it up again, to eat the vomit, throw it up again. That's what I'm like as an untreated alcoholic. I'm like a dog that continuously returns to my own vomit. And I know it's going to make me sick, but my brain convinces me that this time when I eat it, it's going to be okay. And it's baffling to me. Now, our big book talks about that mental blank spot, that strange phenomenon that parallels our sound reasoning. I call it the liar. I got this liar that lives in my head, and the liar loves to drink. The liar loves the effect produced by alcohol and doesn't want to give it up at all, ever. So what it's done is it's built this research institute in my brain. It's called Bullshit Inc. And it researches new ideas, new excuses, new reasons and justifications. Even though I burned my life to the ground, this time when I have a drink, somehow, some way, I'm going to be able to control it and enjoy it. And here's the problem. The liar always won the argument. You're all related to the liar that lives in our head trying to convince us why we should pick up another drink or a drug or act out if you suffer from those addiction patterns. Now, in the beginning, as an untreated alcoholic, when I remember when we first started drinking, remember that warm hug we got from drinking? It was like an old friend coming over to visit. And it was it, it seemed like the answer Bill talks about in his story. It was an alloy that he could wield and forge in his life. And it seemed like the answer to everything. Um, I once heard a, a great trajectory of what alcoholism looks like because it's progressive in the beginning it's all fun then it's fun with problems and in the end it's nothing but problems now why do i drink well my general state as an untreated alcoholic is i'm restless i'm irritable i'm discontented i'm bored i'm depressed i'm anxious i don't like feeling that way so when i drink it all goes away see drinking is my solution it's not my problem Running out is a problem. Drinking is my solution to what ails me, because I don't feel that once I start drinking. The trouble is, it's progressive. And, you know, now I'd like to say, hey, I'm just going to go to the pub, have a, you know, a, a couple of shots of bourbon and a pint of beer and come home. And I really believe that's all I'm going to do. But once I start now, I have no idea what that's going to look like. It could last a night. It could go on for another day, a week, a month, a year, or who knows how long. I have no idea how long it's going to last when I drink now. 
And then as I'm on this proverbial spree where I have no control over my consumption, there's that moment where I come up for air and I go, oh my God, I can't go on like this. And I'm filled with horror and remorse and hopelessness. And I make a firm resolution not to drink again. And we've all done that, right? Coming off a horrible spree and saying never again, never again. And here's the rub. I guarantee if you hooked up any one of us to a lie detector test when we make that resolution, it's 100% true. We mean it with all our hearts. So why do we see so much relapse and succumbing to the desire again? I go into these rooms. I know I can't drink, but I don't know how to live without it. And I'm told, go to a meeting. So I go to an AA meeting. Unfortunately, it's one of those open disgusting meetings where there's no solution. And I go in, I sit down in that chair, and I'm hearing problems, and I'm hearing drinking stories, and I enter into what I call sodriety. Now, two things happen in sodriety. First, I sit there with no, no way how, to, how do I live without booze, and I start getting restless and irritable and discontented and bored and depressed. And then I sit, the liar comes out of remission, starts working on a reason why I should pick up a drink. The liar always wins the argument. I succumb to the desire again, and I'm off on another spree. And I go around that wheel of misfortune, spree, remorse, resolution, spree, remorse, resolution. Round and round I go, pursuing my love of alcohol to the gates of insanity or death. Raise your hand if you know someone who's died from alcoholism or addiction for that matter, right? We all know at least one person. I've buried 44. I got the point now, hand out toe tags. I ordered 100 toe tags from the morgue supply house. It's my newest business card. It's It's got a real poignant sting when I hand it out to the newcomer. It's a death sentence if we got it. Now, the other thing I see in the rooms, I talk about out of 44 people I buried, nine hung themselves in sobriety. Why would someone hang themselves in sobriety? And you, might have, you may have met some of these people in your own rooms there. They sit there. They know they can't drink. They don't want to drink. And instead, they stay in sobriety, and they literally go insane. And they end up taking their own lives. Nine out of 44 people hung themselves. The chance of suicide this is in the Oxford Handbook to Psychiatry. An untreated alcoholic in the first five years of sobriety is 80 times more likely than normal society to, to commit suicide. It's a real problem in the rooms. 80 times higher. I had to read the stat twice. I couldn't believe it. That's in the Oxford Handbook to Psychiatry. And you see, this is the horror of step one. It's the realization, I will drink again. Nothing secular, nothing human will stop this train wreck from happening. I'm going to drink again, and for me to drink again is to die. And that's a horrifying conclusion. Yet I come into the rooms of AA, and I meet people who don't drink. Or self-admitted alcoholics who don't drink. That's very compelling to me, who wants to stop but can't stop. And I was fortunate enough to meet someone who was armed with the facts about themselves. They had a common solution, the big book of AA, and a generosity of spirit. And they showed me a way out of that hole. And my life's never been the same since. And using this program in my life, I rebuilt a destroyed marriage. My, my, my wife and I celebrate 33 years of marriage this year. She's my best friend, my confidant, my soulmate, my business partner. 
Um, I terrorize my kids and my wife, for that matter, as, a, as an angry alcoholic. I have the love and respect of both my children. My daughter's 37. My son's 39. My son has a 12-year-old nonverbal autistic boy. There's a lot of challenges with raising a boy that, you know, with those challenges. So for me to be sober, for me to be a part of his life and that family is a gift. It's a gift that AA gives me day in and day out. My liver went back to normal after six years in the program. Another miracle in my life. There's a passage in our big book that says, Go out and see what other religious people are doing. So in my 50s, I'm 66 now, I decided I'm going to go to university. I'm going to get a degree in religions. So I enrolled in the University of Toronto. And I graduated in 2016 at the top of my class in medical anthropology and religions. By the way, here are three really good predictors of recovery. One, we work with others. Two, we go back to school. We improve ourselves, improve our, our consciousness, our abilities for our communities, our families, our careers. You know what the third thing I see alcoholics and addicts do that tell me they got a really good program? They fix their teeth, right? Because who's got money for teeth when we're out there? I put like 15 grand into my mouth since I've sobered up. We fix our teeth. So if you're fixing your teeth, working with others and going back to school, you're you're golden. This program has taken me, I never traveled anywhere prior to uh, sobering up. And AA has taken me around the world. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Spain. I was just in Denmark back in mid-August. I've been all across England, United States, Canada. Man, like it is a stellar life being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an alcoholic who doesn't drink. Paradox of our program. So what happened? How did I go from a 26-year losing streak from the age of 20 to the age of 46, to being on a 20-year winning streak. And like I said, I met this person who was armed with the facts. They had the solution, and they uh, had a generosity spirit. Now, we didn't go to another meeting. We went to a coffee shop, opened up big books, and started reading. And the first thing he said to me was, he says, Cameron, you're going to be a sponsor. The whole point of this program, the whole foundation stone of your recovery program rests on you being a sponsor. Kindly act once in a while isn't enough. He says, you know, in the first 88 pages of our big book, before we get into chapter eight, uh, working with others on page 89, it mentions 124 times work with another alcoholic. And they don't mean your sponsor. They mean work with the guy or the gal that's in the hole and show them a way out. And Bill and Bob understood that relationship. Taking care of one another. Bill took care of Bob and Bob took care of Bill. When I, when I sponsor people, I co-sponsor. Like brother and brother, brother and sister. I watch your back, you watch my back, and together, arm in arm, we go look for this power that these self-admitted alcoholics who don't drink anymore have connected to. When I was at university, I was researching, uh, I was doing a paper on AA, and AA is an alternative healing system. That's what medical anthropology studies. And this was a Baltimore, Maryland drug study that was done in the year 2000. Now, they had 500 injection drug users. These were heroin and cocaine injection drug users. And they had three groups in this test sample. They had those with sponsors, those without sponsors, and those that sponsored others. And they looked at their abstinent rates at the end of one year. Now, those with a sponsor and those without sponsors, there was absolutely no difference in their sobriety rate which was 40% or less. Actually, the ones that didn't have a sponsor fared better than those that did have a sponsor. 
I think there's a reason for that. You know, prior to Joe and Charlie coming on the scene in the 80s, you were more likely to sober up your own than go into the rooms of AA where it was all meaning makers make it and a lot of therapy and treatment center stuff going around the rooms and it was just awful. Um, but they found no correlation between being sponsored or not having a sponsor, no correlation to abstinency. But what they found interesting was those that sponsored others, 75% of that group was still sober at the end of the first year. And if you read the sport to the second edition, when they were studying the abstinent rates in AA in the 40s, said 50% sobered up once, 25% sobered up after a few relapses. Again, there's that 75% efficacy rate. All the power of the program, all the efficacy of our recovery is in sponsoring others. That's the whole point. My job is to get you through the steps as quickly as you can take it, and get you out there working with other alcoholics because business is booming, folks. Like, I don't know about Mississippi, but here in Toronto, it's booming. It seems like everybody's got a problem. And there's a desperate need for good sponsorship in our rooms. I'm what's called a big book sponsor. You know, there's two lines in the big book that I just love. Uh, it's mentioned once in To the Wise, and it's mentioned once in the um, Working with Others. It said, read this book. I think those are the three best words that are in there. Read this book. And uh, and that's what I teach. I'm a big book sponsor. I use the instructions of the big book to teach people how to connect to a power greater than themselves. And, um, you know, because what I love about the big book, unlike other recovery texts out there, it's written like a recipe. You follow the recipe. The end result is an awakening, a spiritual awakening to a power that lets you easily control your desire to drink or use or act out. Now, the biggest controversy I have in the rooms is how fast should we take the newcomer through the steps? How much time do we really have to work with the newcomer? Some people say take a year. Don't even work the steps for the first year. I don't know about you, but I, I work with a lot of, you know, down and out alcoholics. They don't have a year. They're going back out to drink again as to die. I even think, you know, 30 days now in the 40s, if you've read Wally P's book, Back to Basics, they, they took all 12 steps in four one-hour sessions. I find even a month can be dicey. So when I sit down with an alcoholic who's honest, willing, and open-minded to do the work, I do it in about 10 days. I could do it in a day, but it's a long day, and I, I question that amount of indoctrination in a day, I, I, I question the efficacy of that. So I stretch it out over the course of seven to 10 days and we go through all 12 steps. We map, we, we get into the inventory, we look at the resentments and the harms and, and the fears and we map out the amends in eight, nine and I get them out there working their programs and sharing it with others. And if you've read your big book, that. that the early, the old timers never took a long time. Ebby Thatcher was 60 days sober when he carried the message to Bill. Uh, Dr. Bob was two weeks sober when he carried the message to Bill Dots in AA number three. Uh, Bill was only seven days sober on his third treatment center, so sobering up at the town's hospital when he went out looking for other alcoholics. So they all worked it very quickly. So that's the approach that I take out there. And, you know, when I've got a hopeless alcoholic who, who goes, and here's the thing, what I'm trying to create is a situation where they go, hey, I'm like you, and you're like me, 
but you don't do it anymore. And I want what you got. That's, that's really why our stories are supposed to really capture. That's the whole point of our, our of sharing the message. Cause every, every, every member has a story to tell. And somewhere in the room, there's an ear that desperately needs to hear your story so they can identify and resonate and say, Hey, I'm like you, you're like me, but you don't do it anymore. And I want what you got. And what do we got? We got a higher power. And that's what I love about step two. Step two says we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that would restore us to sanity. What does that really mean? See, I love step two because it infers a process. I'm coming to believe by working this program, I'm going to raise my consciousness. Most alcoholics, when they come into the rooms of AA, they're barely toilet trained apes, right? They eat, they defecate, they fornicate. That's about all they're good for, right? They're run by the reptilian fight flight brains. But this program raises consciousness where we can transcend that reptilian brain, engage these prefrontal lobes, and transcend to that intuitive knowing, that sixth sense that lets us solve the most baffling situations, that connects us to a power that lets us easily control our desire to drink or use or act out. And the question is, where do we find this power? And that's another paradox of this program. Where do we find this higher power? We find the great reality deep down within ourselves. If you're looking for it anywhere but inside here, you're looking in the wrong spot. Deep down within ourselves. That's the paradox. And this power is not only greater than me. It's greater than the booze. It's greater than the drugs. It's greater than the acting out addiction pattern. Because if it isn't, I'll always go back to the power I know, which is alcohol. Alcohol, I've been worshiping alcohol for 26 years. It has been my God for 26 years. They don't call alcoholic spirits for nothing, right? So this power we talk about in the program, it better be real. Or I'll go back to what I know is real. And I'm here to bear witness that it is real. You know, and that's part of the step two proposition. Let the testimony of others bear witness to this power. Y'all think of someone you know in these rooms that's just like you, gone down the rabbit hole as far as you have or even further, who doesn't do it anymore because they've got a power greater than themselves at work. Let their testimony bear witness to this power at play. The second thing is the ability to be honest. And the third thing, to search diligently within yourself. And you can join us on this broad highway. You know, Mark Houston, great American um, sponsor who passed away in 2010. He used to tell this story about this guy that goes duck hunting. And he brings his dog and he shoots a duck and it drops in the middle of the pond. And his dog gets up and walks across the water, picks up the duck and returns with it. And his buddy doesn't say anything. So he shoots another duck, drops in the middle of the pond. The dog gets up, walks across the water, picks up the duck, brings it back. And his buddy still doesn't say anything. So he turns to his friend. He says, hey, you see anything wrong with my dog? And he goes, yeah, that dog can't swim. Missing the miracle of a dog walking on water. You know, there are people here today, right now, out of these eight people, who don't who are self-admitted alcoholics who don't drink anymore. That's the dog walking on water. They bear witness. They bear witness this power at work. And that's why our stories are so important. So we can talk to that ear in the room who feels so hopeless, who feels so despondent, they have no way out. And we bear witness to this higher power at work. And they go, I'm like you. You're like me. I want what you have. 
And that's all step two is. So now we have to make a decision. So it's in step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understand it. What do we mean by that? What do we do? Well, what do we mean by it is we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna give up our self-will. We're gonna, we're gonna do God's will. Right? We're we're firing the liar and we're hiring God. And we're going to do God's will. And we're given that wonderful prayer, that step three prayer, where I take that prayer every morning and I affirm to my higher power, I'm going your way today. So instead of in all my affairs being selfish and fearful and dishonest and resentful, I'm going to be honest, pure, unselfish and loving with my family, when I'm in the rooms, when I'm at work, when I'm in public. And in the application of those spiritual principles just for today, doing God's will, because I'm I'm no longer in the Cameron business. I'm in the God business. God's the principal. I'm the agent. We're agents of God. Wouldn't that be a cool business card? On the back of my business card here, I have Cameron F., agent of God. Isn't that cool? I'm an agent of God. How can I be helpful? That's our new job description. And... This is what we're signing up to do. Just for today, I'm going to do God's will. And in the application of those spiritual principles throughout my day, I access a power that lets me easily control my desire to drink. Hence, I'm an alcoholic who doesn't drink, contingent on our daily program. And that's all step three is. It's kind of like, the yeah, you all seen the movie The Matrix? Remember The Matrix? It's a great, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's a great analogy for step three. It's all about this world that's hidden from humans. And they, and it comes down to this decision where the one of the protagonists, uh, Larry Fishburne, plays this character, Morpheus, offers Keanu Reeves, who plays the central protagonist, Neo. And he says, I got two pills here. I got a red pill and a blue pill. Take the blue pill. Go back to sleep. Think whatever you want to think. Take the red pill and wake up, and I'll show you how far the rabbit hole really goes. Step three is a red pill moment where we wake up. Most won't do it. Ignorance is bliss, or bliss is ignorance, right? People would rather not think. The red pill wakes us up, and it's really dynamic to do so, but it's not for the faint of heart. Now, the first time I tried to meditate and connect to this power deep down within, making this decision... I got such a racket in my head. I'm full of resentments and fears and guilt and shame and harms. Oh, my God, it's just so noisy. So step four and five is a process where we get right with ourselves. We do an inventory on our big on our fears, our harms to others, our resentments, and we tease out the character defects. And I start to see a pattern evolving in my character defect. Like, I'm arrogant. I'm bigoted, I'm misogynistic, I'm hateful, I'm slanderous, I'm gossiping, I'm, mis I, I, I'm misanthropic, I literally loathe my own species, I vilify other people. Like, it is a nasty list of character defects that come out of all my fears, out of my harms, and out of my resentments. And I'll never get my, my uh, sponsor saying to me, as he looked at this list and all these destroyed relationships, he says, you see that list, Cameron? That's your resume. That's who you are as an untreated alcoholic. Next time you go for a job interview or post an eHarmony profile, that's the list you should post because that's who they're getting. And I thought, that's really objectionable. That's my resume as an untreated alcoholic. But what's great about doing our inventories, and I love doing step four because it wakes us up. Instead of hatred, 
What's God's will? It's forgiveness and acceptance and love. Instead of vilifying others, looking for the good in others, acceptance, kindness, respect. Same thing for misogyny and bigotry and rudeness. To be kind, respectful, polite, courteous. And now I understand. I understand what the bondage of Cameron is, which is my fourth column. I understand God's will for me, which is column five. And here's, here's another paradox. You can't do an inventory unless you're living in God's world. The very act of doing an inventory puts you into the spiritual realm. Because it forces you to be honest, to be responsible. It forces you to be accepting and to look at who you are. And that's why I love about inventories. Because every time I do an inventory, I'm in God's realm. And I'm tapping that power that lets me easily control my desire to drink. And so now i got a track to run on. But if all we needed to know was step, uh, was to know our inventory, our our you know, our column four, what blocks us from God, and column five, what gives us access to God, we'd only have five steps. But you see, behavioral modification doesn't work for us, so we need a spiritual intervention. So six and seven is about getting right with God. In six, I see how futile, fatal, and destructive those column four defects are. And in step seven, I ask God to give me the strength to be the man I'm meant to be in the spiritual world, to be his agent to practice those spiritual principles. And I get right with God. And I and I, I always conclude my day with the step seven prayer. I start it with step three where I wake up, and I conclude it in an awakened state of consciousness with step seven. And then in eight and nine, I get right with others. I take those spiritual principles and I apply them to all those destroyed relationships. And I start making amends and reparations and clean up the past. Look at the power we're building. In step one, we have no power, we die. Step two, we know there's power out there, we see it working in others. Step three, we make a decision to go look for the power. Step four and five teaches me what blocks me from the power, what gives me access to power. By eight and nine, I'm wielding such a power through me that I'm cleaning up the wreckage of my past and that vehicle of one to nine launches me into that realm of the fourth dimension, that spirit world. Now the question is, is once I'm fully awake, and growing with effectiveness and understanding, how do I stay here? And the disciplines of 10 and 11 is our daily program of action of how we live without booze. How do we grow in effectiveness and understanding with this power? And having had the spiritual awakening, we try to carry the message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. To me, a good balanced program, I take care of family first, take care of what God has given me. Second priority is work. If I'm not self-supporting, I can't take care of family. And then in my spare time, part-time as an advocation, I carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers. To me, that's a good balance program. And, you know, when you nothing ensures immunity from drinking or using or acting out as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when everything else fails. And, you know, when you sit down with someone who's so far gone, and you think they'll never, ever get well. And to watch them get well, to climb out of the hole. And that's an experience you don't want to miss. It's the best, best dope there is. I call it the God dope, the spiritual dope. It's really amazing. And look at the power we have in step 12. Everybody has failed the alcoholic, the family, the church, the medical community, the religious community. They all seem to fail the alcoholic, the untreated alcoholic. But we... As lay alcoholics armed with the facts about ourselves and our common solution and our generosity, we heal the seemingly hopeless. God turns us into healers 
Now that's power. So the next time, and you know, business is booming, folks. In the workshop, I say it only takes a few hours to learn how it works and the rest of your life to practice it. And so, you know, business is booming. So it doesn't take a long time to learn how to work the program. And when someone is struggling and in the hole, you know, let's, 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 let's show them how to work it. You're not going to fuck them up any more than they're already fucked up. So throw them a bone. You just might see a miracle before you. So the next time you hear the alcoholic crying out from the hole saying, please help me, what should we do? We should jump into the hole with them. And they look, they're bewildered. Now we're both in the hole, but we can turn to our brothers and sisters with a wink in our eye and we can say, we I've been here before. I got a way out. I got a way out for more experience and strength and hope. I got a way out to walk hand in hand with the sunlight of the spirit. I got a way out to be an intelligent agent, a spearhead of God's ever advancing creation. And I'm for that. How about you? God bless. See you on the firing lines of recovery. It's um, Cameron.